Live to see it, friends. You're listening to Fast Forward Radio on the Blog Talk Radio Network. Fast Forward Radio is an audio production of The Speculist, and you can find us online at speculist.com. That's S-P-E-C-U-L-I-S-T dot com. Or if you don't mind typing a few more characters, you can go straight to blog.speculist.com. That'll bring you straight to the good stuff. On The Speculist and on Fast Forward Radio, we talk about the future. We talk about emerging technologies and emerging possibilities. We talk about what we believe is going to be a very bright future, one that will be here sooner than many of us expect, and one that we're all going to want to live to see. My name is Phil Bowermaster, and with me, as always, is my co-blogger and co-futurist and co-host, Stephen Gordon. Hey, Stephen, how are you? I'm doing great, Phil. How are you? Well, I, I was... Uh, mentioning before we started that uh, I'm, I'm still dealing with the very last dregs of this, uh, this cold. I swear I've been talking about my cold as long as I, I think as long as I talked about the Colorado Rockies last fall. <laughs> it's I, an ongoing I've feature. As many weeks. Yeah, it's a fast subject. I, I, I want a uh, post at the Speculist. It's a well fill, you know. It's pretty yeah, simple. we want to get that up there soon. It's a well fill. <laughs> well, the doctor's got me on antibiotics, so I think I get rid of this cough. Spring is here in the Rockies, so I'm going to be... Uh, on my bike here before too long, and uh, all will be well, I'm sure. But uh, how, how are things going with you? All's well. All's well. And, uh, yeah, got the kids back in from uh, Boy Scout camp, uh, the two older ones, uh, this weekend. They they had a great time, and, uh, I mean, all manner of fun. Uh, that, sounds like, uh, that sounds great. How, how long was Boy Scout camp? Well, they, they spent the night two nights. Went uh, Friday night and got back uh, got back today. And, uh, I mean, it, it, you know, the whole the whole spiel, everything you can imagine associated with Boy Scout camp, they did, you know, canoeing and archery and woodworking. And uh, one neat project, uh, they had one guy that was out there working on, I can't imagine what this looks like. I need a picture. And if I can get a picture, I'll I'll, I'll put it up, but it's uh, some guy was working on a wooden Ferris wheel with all the carvings. I mean, apparently, the various Boy Scouts were contributing car- small carvings that were being placed on this wooden Ferris wheel, and uh, and so how, how big of a? I, mean, I, I got the impression it was about a story and a half tall. So apparently, it's just like big enough you could actually people could ride it. Yes, yes, absolutely. A big, oh, okay. Yeah, I was thinking like a model. No, no, big, big deal. And uh, and wow. uh, and so yeah, the, uh, and the you know Boy Scouts were contributing like little carvings and things that were like being put on for decoration around this Ferris wheel. And so yeah, it's, uh, I, I thought that's that's a pretty interesting project. Uh, yeah, well, that sounds pretty cool. But I got to tell you, it sounds a little Burning Man to me. <laughs> That's just a little bit, doesn't it? You want to keep an eye on that uh, Boy Scout camp. Yeah. Right there. They're <laughs> yeah. Off in a, in a we, we, yeah, we definitely want to make sure that it's on the up and up, don't we? Well, yeah, you know, I just there, there's a, there's a you know age appropriate you know for burn, Burning Man, and then there's uh, you know your kids. <laughs> That's right, exactly. <laughs> so you got to watch out for that. We've also got Michael Darling with us this evening. Michael, how are you? Good evening. I'm. Uh, you're reminding me that uh, Burning Man. Good idea. Yeah, for adults. For adults. But I'm thinking there there might be a way to take a bunch of Cub Scouts to Burning Man. Cub Scouts at Burning Man. I think it could be a thing. <laughs> well, it maybe it could because Burning Man is all about being a community, and I believe that some of the participants do bring their children to Burning Man. I I think I I would have to. I saw it on uh, carefully monitor. So it must it must happen. Yeah. However, I bet a very very small subset of them are also participants in Scouts. Just call it a hunch. It just you know, I, you know, I, I could be wrong, but I think the overlap between the Burning Man crowd and the Boy Scout camp is not that great. <laughs> well, all the more reason I say that's why the scouts should be there. Well, there you go. Okay. I mean, holy We're, cow! Uh, building community, yeah. <laughs> diversity, or whatever you want to. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. It's, it's, so, uh, Michael, we we understand that belated uh, birthday greetings are uh, uh, owed to you. So, uh, happy belated. Uh, how, how was the birthday? It was uh, exactly as I wished it. It was very low key and almost like no one knew. Uh, that was good. It was uh, uh, no. I didn't do anything big. Didn't you know? Do anything stupid or reckless, as far as I know. We well, see. I, I like going the other way. I like big, stupid, and reckless. <laughs> For your birthday, yeah. You know, I mean, when, when else? Yeah, once a year. You know, whatever. 
I've done that. I've I done think that we definitely want to keep Stephen away from Burning Man. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe send him as our special correspondent. Actually. <laughs> yeah. He could have his birthday at Burning Man. <laughs> but when does Burning Man fall every year? When? Uh, late yeah. in the summer. It's like late August into September. Okay. Well, that's yeah, not my birthday. Tell us exactly. I think he was in the chat room just saying something about uh, burning. Or perhaps I'm wrong, but I thought he was. I don't know. I can't talk and read chat at the same time. Isn't that your job, Michael? Actually, exactly. That's that's my Michael. That's your department, man. Yeah. Keep okay. Us, keep us informed yeah. on what's going on. Talk and read right. chat at the same time. That's all we ask of you. And and if you can chew gum, fine. But you know, just those two things. <laughs> <laughs> that's the main thing we're looking for. Well, anyway, happy happy belated. We won't go into details about how old or anything. I think it's suffice to say that you're the oldest guy uh, on the program this evening. There you go. Okay. And I'm and I'm I'm you know not even a third of the way to my 150 year old life expectancy. So. Well, there it is. So. That that kind of yeah that that puts you in 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 a ballpark without having to get too specific. That's right. So we got a great show this evening. We've got a number of really cool topics that we're going to be talking about, mostly around the future of ethics, and uh, we're, we're going to get a little bit into um, how our ideas of right and wrong might be evolving over the, uh, over the centuries. But I want to start out by observing what yesterday was. Speaking of auspicious days, Michael's birthday this week, and also yesterday was, uh, I, I called it on the blog, Jury's Night. Actually, I got that from this group, net, where they encourage people to have big parties celebrating the first manned space flight, which was 47 years ago yesterday, the first flight of uh, Yuri Gagarin uh, into orbit. The, the Russians beat us in the space race, and that was uh, 47 years ago yesterday. And 27 years ago yesterday was the first ever space shuttle flight. So they actually timed the first flight of the, of the space shuttle to coincide with the uh, anniversary of Gagarin's first flight. Just, that's uh, that's uh, interesting. I wonder if they were trying to step on his date. <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah, we were I still in the middle of. We were still. I guess you could still say that's the late space race. They well, we, we actually we had won the space race by then, but yeah, it was definitely yeah. still Cold War. Yeah. So I, I don't know. You know, Gagarin was dead by then. I think it was probably more of a tribute than a. But uh, did uh, did 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 not Gagarin have a bunch of flights? I mean, that guy was in space, like, you know, every other weekend, wasn't he? Well, I actually don't know what his, what his total record in, in space was. I know that um, he ended up uh, married to Valentina Tereshkova, the first woman in space. And uh, apparently that was more of, uh, from, from the way the story is told, more of a marriage of propaganda convenience. <laughs> that the, the uh, communists really wanted the first man in space, the first woman in space married, and, and they became this major kind of uh, public relations arm of the Soviet Union wow. for some time. They ended up divorced, and he actually died uh, doing flight tests. He, he, he died in an airplane crash while still relatively young. So I don't, I don't know how many more space flights he did. But well, I was going to suggest that uh, given the, uh, the planned future of the shuttle, perhaps they could time the last flight of the shuttle to coincide with the date of his last trip to space because I don't think it's that far off. Uh, yeah, that's true. The, the shuttle is... Uh, winding down its its career and how interesting that um that the first shuttle flight came only 20 years after Gagarin's first flight and here we are some 27 years later shuttle still in service and well I don't know how other people feel about it to me the shuttle always felt like kind of a step back like it, it wasn't the big leap forward that uh that that, that some of the earlier progress in, in space flight had represented it almost feels like we're kind of in a bit of a lull in, in terms of our development in, in, of, of manned space flight ever since we've been uh, flying the shuttle. What do you guys think? Yeah. Instinctively and emotionally it feels that way because the shuttle doesn't go anywhere. I mean, it goes into orbit, and that's oh, in and of itself orbit. cool, but it just goes and it comes back, and it goes and comes back. I'm like, oh, but it didn't go anywhere. Yeah. Right. Although, who was it, Robert A. Heinlein, who said, uh, or somebody who said, low Earth orbit is halfway to anywhere. <laughs> so breaking breaking the gravity well i mean that's the big deal isn't it that is the big deal but which is better to get halfway to anywhere or all the way to somewhere say, yeah. the moon and that to me is part of the significance i was writing about this uh, on, uh in the blog post about uh, gagarin's achievement to, to me 
a, a huge part of the significance of that was how it was responded to in this country, that we looked at uh, the first the launch of Sputnik and then uh, especially Gagarin's flight into space as a major threat to, to potentially to our national security, that the Russians were going to take the high ground, they were going to have weapons up there, they were going to own the new frontier, and we were going to be left on the dustbin of history um, because, of, because of their leapfrogging over us technologically, and that had to be responded to. And in fact, it was in um, May of 1961, and this would have been not even a month and a half after Gagarin's flight, President Kennedy makes a speech before a joint session of Congress, and he says this. He says, first, I believe that this nation should commit itself to achieving the goal, before this decade is out, of landing a man on the moon and returning him back safely to the Earth. No single space project in this period will be more impressive to mankind or more important for the long-range exploration of space, and none will be so difficult or expensive to accomplish. So within a few weeks, really, of Gagarin, we decided we had to go to the moon. Right. And it's what, not a coincidence, is it? That, it? that is no coincidence. This was definitely in response to that. Now, what I just read was President Kennedy's first mentioning of that, but I don't think that's the most famous articulation of that, which we do have uh, recorded. Stephen, if you could cue that up. All right. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Because that goal will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills. Because that challenge is one that we're willing to accept, one we are unwilling to postpone, and one we intend to win, and the others too. That was later in 61? That was actually in September of 1962. He was speaking at Rice University. Wow. Yeah, I mean, you talk about audacious. I mean, we choose to go to the moon, and we're going to go because we choose to. I mean, that's... Right. It's and not because it's easy, but because it's hard. Yeah. Uh, just, uh, wouldn't, wouldn't you love to hear the President of the United States, whoever it ends up being here, uh, say something like that? I, uh, yeah. That would just be incredibly inspiring. Well, you know, some, and some presidents could pull the, I'm sorry, go ahead, Michael. What would be the equivalent for our time? What would be the the uh, spring of 2009 audacity or audacious claim to go, hey, we're going to put bring a man, to the, would it be just further out? We're going to put a man on Mars and bring him back safely? Or would it be some other advance? Well, we couldn't put a man on Mars. We'd have to put a team on Mars. Right. Mars is a a whole different level. Yeah, or we yeah we choose to go to Mars and establish a presence there, maybe. Yeah. Or possibly we choose to develop a new source of energy. Mike, Michael, I think you've talked about that one before, being kind of an Apollo level. I would love to see that be the the bar. We're going to have a working fusion reactor producing commercially viable uh, electricity by the end of you know by 2020. Not because we know it's easy, but exactly because we know it's hard. It'll be the great technological challenge, but we can do it. You know, I was just thinking when I was listening to Kennedy, you know, there's some presidents that can pull that off, and then some presidents that can't. And I don't want to get political. We're always, we, tr we try to be apolitical. But you can imagine, you can, of course, Kennedy saying something like that. Maybe, yeah. maybe on the other side, you could uh, perhaps imagine Reagan having said something. I think so. Ronald Reagan could have pulled something like that off. Could have pulled off. something like that off. Um, Carter would not say we choose to go to the moon. I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't know. It's just uh, I, I, and there are some presidents that just couldn't pull it off. Kennedy could do it. I, I don't think our current president could have pulled it off. Uh, yeah. I don't, and, and, you know, he'd, and at some point he's kind of flirted with the idea of pushing Mars, uh, as did his father. But um, he just couldn't. Uh, you know, he's not going to make some speech that motivates the nation uh, to put the billions that it would require in, in probably, what do, you, what do you think, maybe trillions uh, that it would require to put a team on Mars? It was estimated at a trillion dollars like 20 years ago. So, yeah. uh, but, but, of course, that was using different technology than we have now, so it's really hard to say how much it would cost to put a settlement on Mars, but it's a lot of money for sure. Yeah, a big old pile of cash, yep, no doubt. Um, 
uh, although I, I would say that it's not just the um, it's not just the oratorical skills of the leader that make that possible. You've got to have a very broad, optimistic view of the future to say something like that. Right. All that about you know we, we're going to do it because it's difficult. Uh, this will it, let us show the best of our skills and the best of our energies. Just uh, that that model of inspiring people to do something grand um, requires a particular outlook. One that, well, I think you also have to have the moment. Yeah. You know, Kennedy had Gagarin's launch. You had Sputnik. You had people thinking space was the next thing. Um, you had those in the know acknowledging flat out that you know, we're nowhere. You know, at, at the end of World War II, the Russians got to East Berlin first, and they took all the, the heavy rocket guys, and we got there late, and we got the precision guys. But you know, the precision guys is nice, but we can't launch anything. So you had the moment, and here comes 61. Now, okay, the guy had a CZ, he had to have delivery, he had to have that Boston accent. I don't know, that works on me. Um, <laughs> the decade. Well, decade. <laughs> Who else pronounces it decade? But, uh, <laughs> he put the emphasis on the wrong syllable. <laughs> I'm just saying, he, he, in addition to everything else, he also had the, the context of the moment. Yeah. And uh, if he didn't claim, hey, we're going to cure cancer by the end of the decade, I don't, I don't, there's no context for that in 1961. I don't think it would have worked. No, no. I think wouldn't. you're right. Absolutely. That, that, that is a huge, a huge piece of what he, what he accomplished there. This is Fast Forward Radio on the Blog Talk Radio Network. We're opening up the phone lines now. We're talking about the space program. We'll be talking a little bit about the future of ethics. And if you'd like to join the conversation, you can call us at 347-215-8972. Now, I was looking uh, around for information on Gagarin, and uh, I went online to one of my favorite sites, uh, a site where you would expect to find info on Gagarin. Can anyone uh, think of what that might be? Where, where would you go if you want to find good information on Yuri Gagarin? I would start with Wikipedia or net. <laughs> well, both good ideas, but I went to Pravda, of course. Okay, yeah, all right, yeah. Uh, because, uh, you know, if anybody's going to be making a big deal out of uh, the anniversary of Gagarin's flight, you think, well, it's got to be Pravda, right? Plus, Pravda, if if you haven't been there in a while, is a trip. You, you definitely <laughs> need to spend some time on the uh, Pravda website. Well, they did have a big story about Gagarin, but I noticed they also had a big uh, uh, big editorial about uh, how Tibet has always been part of China and that the, the people saying that the Tibetans should be free are just uh, imperialist capitalists uh, trying to exploit the uh, worker. I don't know. I, I didn't get very far with it, but I was thinking, well, you know, some things don't change all that much. I guess Pravda kind of holds to its holds to its line pretty well. But then I found another piece, and that piece uh, takes us into the world of the mysterious, the world of the strange, into a little feature that we like to call... So... On this edition of Tales of the Paranormal, I'm going to share with you guys what I accidentally found on Pravda while looking for information on Yuri Gagarin. And uh, let me just first share the headline with you. I hope you guys are sitting down. Okay, I hope all our listeners are sitting down. Mutants live in the underworld of Moscow. Well, uh, how's this paranormal, though? <laughs> there might really be mutants living in the underworld of Moscow. Oh, are we talking like Chud, or are we talking something else? Okay, A, you got to stick with me on these. But oh. B, I, I throw a lot of stuff into paranormal. I think anything that would have made a good X-Files episode, I'm going to call paranormal. Okay. <laughs> okay. okay. Well, what kind of mutants are we talking about? I mean, is this Well, thank you for asking, Michael. What an excellent question. Uh, the story starts out, this could be a plot for a Hollywood movie. Giant half-inch worms live under the ground of a huge megalopolis, uh, it says megapolis, but I believe they mean megalopolis, threatening the life of millions of its citizens. For the citizens of Moscow, Europe's biggest city, this is, however, a reality. Such worms were found and caught on video camera by Vadim Mikhailovov, a founder of the Diggers organization in Russia. Half-inch worms? Well, that's what it says. Half inch doesn't really sound all that giant. Yeah, hey, that's disappointing. If it's going to threaten Moscow, it needs to be a 30-foot worm. This could be a bad translation, and maybe they mean half a foot. Yeah, I hope so. It could, it could be, it could be a, a bacteria-sized worm and be a threat, but the, you know, the question is, what makes them mutants? And what makes them a threat? Well, hang on, okay? All right. The accident happened not far from the city center. It was witnessed by many diggers that were accompanying uh, Mikhailov. We recorded the video of a giant roaring worm on the video camera, or nobody would believe us. 
However, why are you laughing? What? Was there a joke? Did someone make a joke? Hello. <laughs> I, I was slow to hit the mute button. Sorry. <laughs> However, today we still have to prove on special machines that our record hasn't been edited. So, okay, I want you guys to understand that special machines are being used to verify this video. It's going to be track tape player. Other weird things living down under Moscow. Apparently they've got um, grasshoppers the size of saucers. They've got giant American cockroaches. Don't know how they're American how they know they're American, but they're <laughs> giant American cockroaches. But anyway, we get to, that, that's, all, that's all well and good. But, but well, they're, they're capitalists, probably. Let me get to the... the cockroaches, okay. All right, go ahead. Yeah, on. well, I, perhaps it's the behavior that gives them away as Americans. That's a good, that's a good call, Stephen. <laughs> the most experienced digger in Russia, Vadim uh, Mikhailov, thinks the underworld is the beginning of an outer world. He believes in the existence of parallel worlds. People explore the space, he claims... Or, or space, I, I believe that's an uh, unneeded article there. People explore space, he claims, but the underworld is much more interesting and charming. We walk daily above the world that is far more unusual and fascinating than our own world. He became convinced in this after he saw a woman's ghost with his own eyes. He claimed the woman was scared and said something like, help me. He was caught by surprise and suddenly fell down on the ground. Then his friends took him to the hospital, uh, where he also saw another ghost, and she looked the same and was wearing a long dress. So anyway, the story goes on. But I think the important thing to note here is that there are giant, roaring, half-inch worms under Moscow, and that it is the, uh, uh, the, the underground portion of Moscow is the key to the underworld. Okay, yeah, now that's paranormal. That's definitely paranormal. Yeah, I told you it would get more paranormal as we... It's not Chud, and it's not Soviet Chupacabra, but it's pretty dang good. And Scooby-Doo has to go investigate. <laughs> no doubt. Yeah, I think, well, that's right. They'll pull the rubber mask off the ghost, and it'll be like uh, Vladimir Putin or something. The howling worm will be a holograph. It's, it's easy. I, I see how they did it. Hmm. No, I think there may be more to this than that. I, I think this could indeed be the, uh, the gateway to another world. Um, but we'll have to uh, leave that for now and explore this again on the next edition of... Very nice work, Stephen. You have really got the switch down. I <laughs> hey, I'm, I'm on the button over here. You are totally on the button. So let's uh, actually talk about our topic for the evening, which is the future of ethics. And I thought uh, we would start off uh, looking at the relationship between human beings and animals. And I had written a post on this today, uh, the the title of the blog post was Bring on the Meat Factories. And uh, the basic subject here is I, I rehashed a good deal of material about how I came to where I currently am with my own carnivorous habits. And where I am with them is I no longer eat mammals, which is a, always a kind of a conversation stopper whenever you're like out with coworkers or uh, uh, even family and uh, and. You're trying to explain it, you know. Somebody will say, "Oh, so you don't, you won't have a steak, but you'll have chicken." It's like, right? Well, I don't eat red meat. Now, you, you know, you can say red meat, and that pretty much gives the uh, gives the idea. But basically, I, what I have done is I've drawn kind of a uh, developmental line, and I've said I'm not going to participate in killing animals above a certain level of sophistication uh, for 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 my food. So I continue to eat um, chicken and turkey, I eat, I eat poultry, and I eat fish, but I don't eat mammals, um, and I, I point this out in the blog post, this really doesn't come up all that much, but uh, if offered marsupial, I would not eat that either. So uh, basically, it's living things with lips that you won't eat. <laughs> if it has hair. That is a great, uh, you know, hair is pretty good, but come on, lips. <laughs> you've heard that all, uh, well, nothing with a face, right? <laughs> I'm like, well, I don't know. I don't know. Fish has a face. I'll eat it. That chicken pretty much got a face. I'll eat those. But uh, I think you might be right. Yeah, uh, well, L- lips kind of. Fish the... got lips, man. Fish got lips. <laughs> I don't know if I'd call those lips, but okay. So you're, you're saying that the lip definition doesn't work for you? I'm, I, you know, I, whatever. I, I, I say we're at the top of the food really chain. Eat away. I saw Mr. Limpet. They have lips. Yeah, I mean, if you've ever been fit, what's the hook going in there? That's a fish lip, man. Unless you hooked it wrong. But uh, I did like that. I did like that definition. But but uh, you know, all levity aside, this is um, uh, this is an attempt on my part to reflect 
uh, a serious ethical stance. Yeah. And as I, as I said in the in, in the blog post, I started out actually started on my birthday, um, August thirty first, two thousand seven, um, and I had my final red meat meal, my final mammal, and I said, that's it, I'm, I'm, I'm done with this now. And I'm not sure if I'm done with it for the rest of my life or if I'm just taking a year off. I've, I'm about six months in, so I have, I have some time to think about that. But, but the idea being that uh, I believe that we're heading towards a future in which it will no longer be considered ethically correct to kill animals, to, to enslave and kill animals for our food. Um, I agree, and but not for the usual reasons that most vegetarians would would put on it. And I think you were kind of going in that direction, Phil. But so sorry to interrupt. Well, that's well. Tell me, but go ahead, Stephen. Distinguish your what what you would say is your view from what you would take to be the the standard vegetarian line. Well, the direction you're going, I know what you're about to mention, Phil, was that uh, we, you know, in the very near future, um, it's going to be possible to manufacture meat without the animal. Right, bat meat or whatever you want to call it, uh, is going to be available, and it'll, it'll be disgusting at first, and get better and better, and and pretty soon it'll be as good as, um, as as you know, the steak off the hoof, you know, and um, and and also there'll be, <laughs> I think that there'll be uh, uh, types of meat that nature never even thought about, you know, uh, there'll be meat type products that, you know. Uh, that we've we've never gotten to eat before because there's no such animal. That was a scene I wanted to see in Jurassic Park. I wanted to see those guys eat one of those creatures. Yeah, have uh, a. It's like you know, hey, T-Rex steak would be pretty awesome. I you just got to, it. You just know, to say I've, it, I've it ain't going to taste like chicken. Right, it's not going to taste like chicken. It's not going to taste very good either because typically speaking, carnivores don't make good meat. Right? Yeah, you could a brontosaurus steak would be better. Would probably be better. Yeah. See, the Flintstones had it right with their Brono burgers. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Flintstones got it right. Yeah, no doubt. But, but in fact, you're, you're right, Stephen. That part part of the idea here is, if I make this choice and others like me make this choice, this helps to create some market pressure uh, for those of us who look forward to the day that uh, I look forward to the day I can have a steak again, and that that steak will not have come from an animal that was killed. It will just be something that was produced. Um, via a manufacturing process, and I one and once we have that, and let's say it's you know comparably priced to you know the steak from the uh, the feedlot that's right ne- you know is, is sitting right next in, uh, to it in the same freezer section of the same grocery store, and it costs the same and it's it's just as good. Uh, then all of a sudden people grow, will grow a conscience on that. I really believe that that's the point at which people say, "Well, tech with this, I can I can not eat and not kill an animal, get the same wonderful tasting steak, and uh, and and I can feel good about myself too." I think that's exact. I think that is exactly where that will happen. Um, and what's interesting is one of the drivers behind this is not the whole ethical dimension. I I got interested in this because I, to me I see this as kind of a sort of a next step in our in our ethical evolution, but the, uh, the, the group that has just had its first uh, ever conference on this, the In Vitro Meat Consortium, and i got to say, if that meat doesn't sound appetizing, boy, how does in vitro meat sound? <laughs> <laughs> they, they need marketing people soon. Okay? Yeah. But, but it's, not, it's not veal. I mean, it's not like you're eating it in vitro. You're, you know, you're growing it in vitro. Yeah. Still, it doesn't sound like something I want to, you know, Mm, in vitro. <laughs> ah, in vitro meat. Mm, yeah, it just sounds pretty gross. Um, I had the first get together, and they're and and you know one of the things they're t- they're talking they're talking about the costs and 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 those those kinds of things. But the real push is environmental. Yeah, yeah. Because cattle create a lot of uh, methane, and methane is uh, actually a much more dangerous greenhouse gas than CO two. Yeah, about ten times the potency of the CO two. As far as heating the planet, yep. So, so um, cattle production has this huge carbon footprint, and it has other uh, damage that it causes to the environment. That presumably, although you know, I I don't know too much about the process, um, this manufacturing process for meat would not have. So, so they're actually pursuing it from an environmental standpoint, and the ethical piece kind of comes along for a ride. Well, and, and so it gives you another thing to feel good about when you're shopping in the grocery store and you see. You know this uh, flaming. And he, you know, here's an interesting point, and I, I think that this will come out. I, I think that they won't be able to call it 
filet mignon. Or you know, I, I bet you, I bet you the 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 ranchers will have the uh, political you know uh, pull to say you know no, it's not filet mignon. It's it doesn't come from an actual cow. Therefore, you have to call it something else. So they'll have to come up with their own labels. It'll be a pasteurized, <laughs> processed, simulated meat food product, <laughs> which doesn't sound nearly as good as filet mignon. Yeah, hungry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it'll it'll be something like uh, the generic, you know, uh, compared to filet mignon, you know. <laughs> no, that, but I mean, that's what marketing will kick in, and they'll come up with a good name for it. Oh yeah. And and you're right, though. I I, I wonder if they will in fact encounter that. It's like it's champagne so, versus it's, a sparkling that's right. wine. You make a sparkling wine in Idaho. You don't get to call it champagne because it does not come from or Burgundy because it doesn't come from that region in France. Yeah, and you don't get to use that name. Uh, I, I think I think you're probably right. If uh, if if it wasn't actually chopped off a pig, you don't get to call it a pork chop. I think there there <laughs> there, there might be a a, a legal case to pork ass chop, or I don't, I don't. They'll come up with something. This is Fast Forward Radio on the Blog Talk Radio Network. Uh, we're talking about legal and ethical issues uh, related to animals, and uh, we're talking about the evolution of ethics. If you'd like to join our conversation, you can call us at 347-215-8972. Now let's talk about the practical implications a little bit around relinquishing meat. You know, we, we had this um, discussion a, a few weeks ago about relinquishing technology, and... Um, uh, or, or choosing not to adopt technology. Here we've got, here we've got something uh, kind of orthogonal to that. The, the idea of I'm going to step away from a practice that basically much of humanity has followed throughout most of human history. There, there are also cultures that uh, have incorporated vegetarianism for for a long period of time. You, you look at India um, and, and the, the Hindu traditions there; they've been vegetarian for for, for a long time. But by and large. Meat eating is something that uh, human beings have been done have been doing for a long time. So, what are the implications around deciding you're not going to eat meat anymore? And uh, Stephen, I think related to one of your blog posts earlier this week, I think there's some just serious logistical or practical issues. Well, yeah, because what I'm doing, Phil, is um, it's a combination exercise program and low carb diet. Okay, and it's 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 being very successful for me. I mean, the the weight's dropping off pretty. Pretty rapidly, I'm glad to report, and uh, good for you. Feeling much better, and uh, so you know, all around, it's, it's it seems to be working, and, and I'm glad for it. But I'm going to tell you something about a low carb diet. It, it, it I, I suppose nothing's impossible, but if you're going to do a low carb diet, you better be ready to eat some serious, you know, stuff with faces. You know, what I'm saying um, <laughs> you're going to be downing, um, you know. I suppose you could still make the you could still do do it with Phil's uh, limitations, Michael. You could I, I suppose you could manage a low carb diet eating fish and and chicken, but um, I've not put that limitation on myself with this with this diet. I, you would get pretty tired of fish and chicken. I, I probably it. would, and Throw so I I eat a lot of um, a lot of red meat as well as part of this. In fact, I, let me tell you that I bought that same book uh, TNT. Right around Christmas time. Oh, okay. I didn't and know. Sort of was looking at going on that right, you know, right around the new year. And with my particular dietary limitations, I just I could not make that work. Yeah, it's it, it would be hard. I mean, to the point of near impossibility if you were going to be a complete vegetarian. Yeah. Uh, well, and I and I think that if you're going to be a complete vegetarian and not eat chicken or fish either. You'd make it probably three weeks into the diet, and then you would collapse because again, you are. You, 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 not, I mean, not only are you. That would be a bad thing, just so we're clear, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, and when I'm saying collapse, I'm, I mean quite literally, you would fall down, and then you know, somebody would have to come check your pulse because what you're doing is a very, very serious and heavy duty uh, uh, workout routine involving heavy lifting of weights, not just getting in there and screwing around. You, you really get serious about it. And I mean, you're starved, and and you know you, um, and that so you have to fill that with something, and uh, and and meat is a huge part of a low carb diet, and I, and I believe that one of the reasons this thing works so well is because we as humans are adapted to a a, a meat heavy diet. Uh, 
and uh, and 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 getting away from that is uh, part of the, and eating more carbohydrate and and things like that is part of part of the problem problem with uh, with the obesity epidemic in this country. Well, I think for for sure we evolved eating um, protein and fat and complex carbs. Absolutely. You know, we and, dig up roots and leaves and things that we eat those. You know, you get some you get some carbs out of it. You're not going to get fat eating eating that, are you? Uh, right. Yeah. There, there there were no Krispy Kremes out there in the uh, in in the hunter gatherer. I think uh, that's that's fair to say. Yes. Setting. It, it, no no refined sugar at all, and uh, and and, yeah. very, and very little in the way of. Uh, and if if you got any kind of uh, any kind of uh, grains, it would probably be uh, it would be whole grain for sure. Yeah. So the, the the refined refined grains and refined sugars, I think, are a relatively recent introduction into our diets, and we're having a hard time dealing with them. Basically, the fluffy carbs. Yep, the fluffy carbs, all the yummy yep. stuff. Circus a, peanuts I'm, comes to mind. I'm a product of the uh, modern era. I am a fluffy carb kind of guy. Yeah. Well, uh, unfortunately, I am as well, and I've and uh, and I, I became a very fluffy guy as a result. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, now I'm. Uh, uh, have it, and trying to reverse that, so that's what it's all about. So I guess my point is, it's it'd be very difficult to to do that. And so yeah, I'm looking forward to the vat meat as well, so that I can I can be thin and feel good about myself too. I guess you, I, could, you should try it for a week. You know, that'd be a great thing to blog about. Okay. You know, don't go vegan, but like just just do the like whey protein. Eggs and cheese, right? You're just eating omelets and whey protein for a week. Now, Stephen ends up in the hospital, and it's because I had this great idea. <laughs> but, uh, you know, you could do it. It's just there wouldn't be much variety, and it would be awfully... Uh, uh, yeah, I'd get tired of that pretty quick. I, yeah. I, I, how about I go with your dietary limitations for a week and report back next week? No, 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 no red meat. Some good seafood down no, there in Louisiana. You oh, yeah. I can, I, can, I can get by with seafood and chicken probably. I'll give it a week and report back to you next week how I did with no mammals in the in the diet. So. Okay, now, but having said all this, so we'll we'll try this experiment this week and we'll see how that goes. And and by the way, congrats and and, and best of luck on the uh, on the program overall. But uh, what what is your thinking in terms of the overall ethical dimension? Do, you know, your, your current dietary situation notwithstanding, do you think that that we are heading? Uh, in, in, in the direction I'm talking about, or do you think that's off base? Well, you know, there are there are other uh, forecasters of the future that have thought we might go the other way. You know, I mean, uh, there was a certain movie a little while back, a dystopian view of the future that uh, you know thought that instead of becoming more ethical about what we eat, we might become less if if we're hungry enough. So anyway, right. hmm. you got to tell him. Silent breed is people! And, you know, hopefully it won't go that direction. Sorry, I talked over that. <laughs> hey, this is, this is worth repeating. Yeah, please, one more time. You gotta tell them, silent breed is people! <laughs> now that is a truly dystopian future, and that is exactly what, that's exactly right. That would be our ethics going the other way. Yeah, and you know where we, you know, we were forced by circumstances to, you know, uh, get a little bit more liberal in what we eat. Yeah, you know, sure they're people, but they're dead, and you know, anyway. Yeah, they're dead, and we're out of resources. Therefore, we have to, uh, we have to feed the pop, the remaining population. Therefore, I mean that that was the actual. Uh, by the way, that's big spoilers for anyone who hasn't seen the movie. <laughs> <Green."> <laughs> um, but yeah, it turns it, out they're it, eating people. Okay, that's, that's, see, so so picture the political leader in the moment where they make the conscious decision: we choose to make people food. Ah, well, yeah. I mean, how do you sell that, that, that deal? Go over as big. I well, yeah, we choose to go to the moon. <laughs> <laughs> It doesn't. It doesn't ring as you know. It just sounds so much better to choose to go to the moon, doesn't it? I cannot put those two together. <laughs> I, want, I want to mention before we before we lose the thread that that was the voice, of course, of Charlton Heston, who uh, passed away last week, and we failed to mention it on last week's program, and so we wanted to definitely make sure we had a small tribute to him this week. Uh, Charlton Heston, great, uh, great twentieth century actor, played in all the. Uh, Bible epics and uh, was in at least three major dystopian science fiction films of the 70s that I can think of. He was in Planet of the Apes, Soylent Green, and um, Omega Man. Yeah. Uh, plus, he was big in the disaster films too. So he, he was kind of a he, he was just kind of a Renaissance man. He was a very dramatic individual. 
there there's a little watched uh, um, western that he did that was just great. Will Penny. Will yeah. Penny is. You know what? That's my dad's favorite movie. That's an awesome wow. movie. Yeah. So, so yeah, he, he's he's an all around kind of actor and uh, a great man and uh, and you know. Whether you believe it, you know, a uh, son. Uh, however, you feel about his politics in his later years, I, I think that uh, most people who knew him thought he was a great guy. So, yeah, and he will be missed. Best, best to his family. I, I did, I did, I, I did want to mention. Uh, did, did, did you guys happen to see the remake, the Abomination remake of uh, Planet of the Apes with Mark Wahlberg? Mm, I've seen part of it. I, I, I guess not, Phil. It all the way through. Carlton Heston has a cameo in that as an old, old chimp. And he actually <laughs> reprises his uh, damn them all to hell line from uh, the end of Planet of the Apes. It's uh, certainly the only reason uh, that uh, that you would want to see that movie. But uh, that, what, what was great about that is that occurred, um, he was already ill by then. But uh, he, he, And it actually had an anti-gun message, which is pretty interesting. Well, it, you know, it, the sort of it was it was sort of an anti-gun uh, line there. Of course, it's a chimp talking, uh, you know. So you don't. You, um, obviously, it's not really Charlton Heston's views on these things necessarily that you're. Well, and, and even the NRA is not advocating the arming of chimps. No, <laughs> true. That's, that's an excellent. It's a human right. Yes. But the the thing the thing that kind of bothered me a little bit last week on all the coverage, it all seemed like Charlton Heston was this political figure, which he was, and it was very important to him, and I don't mean to diminish that. But to me, I will always remember him as just this great guy in all these great movies. And uh, I, I, I don't want people to lose lose sight of that. And and he really he really just sort of wrapped it up very nicely, appearing in that uh, in that final. Uh, in that brief scene in that remake of Planet of the Apes, where he was kind of riffing on himself, both on the uh, the big dramatic line from the end of Planet of the Apes and on his uh, stance as a as a political figure. So, well, yeah, it doesn't it doesn't talk to the ethics of the future. Although I I can't help but say, you know, there are there are films that get remade, and even if they're remade well, I scratch my head and say why. Why was were the was, was the team just so enamored of the original Planet of the Apes and so convinced that now the filmmaking technology had advanced, the moment was right. We we have to redo this. My uh, thought on remakes is if you can't make it better, don't. You know that's kind of all that. And the, and there have been a few remakes that are better. I, the, any jump to y'all's mind of remakes that actually were better than the originals? Well, if you want to talk TV shows, we got Battlestar Galactica, clearly. Yeah, there you go. That's a great example. But I did want to say in defense, since I called it an abomination, I do want to say in defense of the remake of Planet of the Apes that the ape makeup was outstanding. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah that the... really came along over the decades. So, uh... Okay, so that's a reason to maybe redo it. But I, saw, I, I, I caught the tail end of the remake of King Kong recently, the, uh, the, the Jack Black version. Uh, yeah, and I was like, I get that Peter Jackson, nobody's going to tell Peter Jackson no after, after the success of the trilogy, but come on, somebody's got to pull him aside and say, uh, why are we doing this? That was a beautiful movie, though, in the sense that what you saw on the screen was absolutely mind-blowing. Yes, and so what? Yeah, there you go. Well, I don't know. candy. They the thing is they'll make movies out of anything, right? They make them they make them out of old TV shows, they make them out of uh uh video games, they'd make them out of a cereal box. So naturally they're going to remake old movies. I mean, you know, that's just one of the many things that they can they can draw on. They're they're going to make a movie out of anything they can think of that they might be able to make a movie out of. Well, the, well, the, the newest King Kong is better than the 70s King Kong. Let's here's one they should remake or they should make a movie out of a comic book called Mr. X. And the basic premise of Mr. X is that the Mr. X character uh, was a, an architect. He was a designer. He was a master planner. And he, he master designed the perfect city. And it was going to be sort of a utopian city by, because by the very nature of its design. And towards the end of the project, the project got corrupted. And he was exiled and, and ran for his life, basically, because the, uh, the people that took over the project corrupted everything about the design just enough to basically make every not only anti-utopian, but it made everybody paranoid and nobody could sleep, and it was just this wacky city. Great comic book. There's a movie they should make, but nobody's going to make Mr. X into a movie. Well, if somebody, uh, you know, if Dark Horse or somebody gets a hold of Mr. X, does a new series of Mr. X, it's popular. Hey, comics are one of the things they use for movies, so I, you know, push it, man. Well, they should. got to push it. 
You know, the, uh, I just kind of uh, had gotten into the idea just a little bit with the Charlton Heston quote that, you know, sometimes our ethics are based on what we're able to, to do. Um, okay, hold that thought, because what I want to say before you say that okay. is this is Fast Forward Radio on the Blog Talk Radio Network, and we're just getting to the good stuff. Stephen has introduced the, uh, the, the main part of the topic of ethics that I wanted to talk about, and if you'd like to join that conversation, you can join us at 347-215-8972. Sorry to interrupt you, Stephen. Go ahead with that. No problem at all. Um, and so, I mean, if... And, and we've recently, there's an article, and I'll, I'll have it in the show notes, uh, about how, uh, you know, certain, sometimes societies, they reach a certain level of complexity, and then they're doomed to collapse because of uh, over-complexity, hyper-specialization hyper or whatever. Obviously, if, you know, if uh, society collapses, a lot of things that are, that we consider, you know, good ethics today could, you know, I mean, we're not gonna we're not gonna stop eating meat if uh, if society collapses. I think we're more likely to stop eating meat when a meat substitute becomes available because society continues to advance. And so, um, our our ability to have advancing ethics, I think, uh, correlates with our te- with technological advancement. Let me read so that from uh, Michael Anisimov. He he was writing on on this exact subject just a few days ago, and. Uh, he, he writes that uh, uh, everyone will be a vegan soon, if for nothing else, uh, that in vitro meat will be better and cheaper. When we're no longer compelled to mass murder animals in factory farms, many people will stand up and say, well, we knew it was wrong all along. <laughs> yeah. It's amazing how morally sophisticated people can get when practical alternatives to the immoral behavior emerge. And then he says in parens, I'm guilty of this as much as anyone. And in fact, it's I, it's almost a cynical way of looking at humanity, isn't it? But in some ways, it's it's just saying you know we're very very pragmatic about what we consider to be right and wrong. I think it's a uh, I, I think Michael is spot on, and I think it's an a, an acknowledgement of the evolutionary pressure that says, look, we didn't we didn't eat meat because we have a grudge against cows. Yeah. You know, it's not That's like, right. hey, let's go war on the let's let's go make war on all the other creatures with faces. That wasn't really the motivation. Um, although, I mean, the motivation the growling was stomach was too. the motivation. You yeah, know. and it was like, hey, I think there's some food over there. It's in the form of a large animal. Let's hunt it down and eat it. You know, we we uh, hunted the cave bear to extinction, and it was not because. Yeah, I mean. Uh, imagine cave going cave up. So damn good. Yeah. <laughs> well, imagine going up against a cave bear with a spear. You know, um, and how dangerous that was. Uh, you know, hunting uh, would have been in those days, and yet they were willing to do it because they had to do it. They had to do it to to live, to yeah. survive. I mean, and, and I think uh, against it, or they want some cave bear burritos to get them through the winter, right? One, exactly. I, 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 I'm reminded of a documentary film that I think made the rounds. Uh, well, let's see. It would be approximately 30 years ago when I was in 10th grade. 20 years ago. Wait a minute. I can't do the math. Uh, it was a long time ago when I was in 10th grade. and uh, That would have been a long time ago. <laughs> it was, but it was a documentary. It wasn't really happening at the time. I'm going to tell the, what happened in the documentary. That wasn't happening in my life. That was in a film, and I saw it in a classroom. But in the film, um, it's the, the documentary is this, it's the village that, that basically hunts an elephant. And it's the elephant hunt, and they're chasing this elephant with spears and rocks and like you know little little vine made into rope snares. And uh, after an hour of them chasing the elephant, they finally get the elephant, and they're you know maybe four miles from the village by the time they bring the thing down. And everybody in the village comes out, and the whole village basically just picks up camp and moves to where the elephant carcasses for several days because now they have to basically harvest this this kill. And um, at the end of the film, they make the point that. Uh, the village in that mode produces approximately nine days worth of food by capturing an elephant for the entire village. It took them 13 days on average to catch an elephant. Wow. I'm like, so okay, they were so at a deficit. That's right. I'm like, you know, the hunter-gatherer thing, the gatherer part of that society really is the is the the reason that society, that village life, can survive at all. In right. fact, the only reason they go hunt is because either because they always have and they just learned it, or because they're just like, hey, let's go kill that elephant. We can eat it, but it has no it has no real mathematical logic to it. Well, and and don't you know that an elephant would taste good after eating like 
herbs. Roots and, and berries and roots. Figs and, yeah. I'm yeah. not saying I wouldn't eat the thing. I would, but I'm just saying that. Add a little, add a little elephant to the, uh, the root and berry. Although i got to say, you put me in that world, and I think I would have invented vegetarianism. <laughs> man, I don't want to have to go try to kill an elephant or a yeah. bear, right? I would, I would have started a whole thing. Oh man, we shouldn't kill animals. This is just wrong. I, I would have been thinking we should, we should. You would have been a wise man, man uh, Phil. You would have a lot of capture some breeding pairs and we should farm them. Come on. Well, ex- yeah. See, you would, have, you would have invented riding in the wheel. That would have been <laughs> your, your kind of. I don't know. I'm not so sure. <laughs> well, it, it, knowing it, what you know now, that that our relationship. To, um, to animals change, to each other changes, and to the, uh, to the world as a whole changes as our capabilities increase. I really think that technology enables us to broaden our ethical standards. That's, that's really, I think, the, the lesson, um, or, or I think that's what we're seeing at work when we see something like, hey, we're going to start producing meat in vitro and, and not killing animals. I think that is just one of many reflections of a principle that's played itself out over and over again. Last week we were talking about the Civil War, and I've written on the blog before that I think that the Civil War was all about technology. I think that uh, that, that you had two halves of the country that had uh, had gotten a little bit apart from each other in terms of what they were what they were doing with technology. The North was industrialized and didn't need slave labor in order to achieve what they were doing. The Confederate states were still agrarian and very much saw it as necessary for them to have slavery in order to maintain their economic viability. So you have the the North, who is technologically advanced beyond that, who can now take an ethical stance and say this is wrong. You know, it's it's wrong for them because which of course it was, well, but, and, but and they had the ability to say that they had not, re- to, not to say that it was anything other than wrong. It, it clearly it was wrong. Um, but but technology enabled them to get to the point where they could say it. Or you see that when um, we we recognize that we need to protect the environment, right? And um, that that we need to take care of you know vast uh, tracts of of you know wilderness to make sure that species are protected and things like that. I, I think there's a great point to be made there, Phil, because you know um, the green a lot of a lot of green people. In, in in the you know activists of various flavors um, will generally point to you know like the United States and other developed countries and, and wag their fingers at us. But I mean, you talk you, you want to go someplace where the environment is being raped. Try the developing world or the or the undeveloped world. Um, you know, right? If, and why and why are they and why are they not as uh, worried about the environment as we are. Well, because they can't be. They can't afford to be. Exactly. If, if you're if you're starving to death, then and and you know that uh, uh, slashing and burning this uh, this rainforest over here, um, you know, would lead to uh, you know money in this way or that way. Then you're going to do it. And you know, it's it's only later once you've uh, you know you've got an established civilization that you can afford to begin thinking about these other well, concerns. Two points, and, and one definitely more serious than the other, but just so you're clear, when you're talking about green people, and uh, very green people you in flavors, <laughs> we're, we're talking about ecologically sensitive uh, humans, not the soil and green type. Right. <laughs> oh, point oh, oh, two, green giant. Okay. Point two, that uh, I think the, the broader point perhaps is that uh, there's a, a, a solid argument to be made that all ethics now and in the future are contextual. And uh, the classic kill or be killed example that justifies uh, taking life or even taking human life, um, you know, even beyond that, the, the extension to a civilization saying, well, yeah, but if we don't do X, Y, or Z, we don't see how we can sustain our population. We can't produce enough food to feed ourselves. And if we do X, Y, Z, and it results in some environmental harm that we can't afford to see our way through yet, um, the ethics of the situation become contextual, and it becomes a, a temporal and a complicated thing. It's not so easy to just say, yeah, we shouldn't let uh, we shouldn't let the developing world have cars like we have because we know that we can't afford the the carbon footprint that that's going to come with it. Well, 
that's a that's ethically that's a kind of a harsh thing to tell the guy that's sitting in yeah. India and, and has never had a chance to own a car. That's a tough, tough sale. Yeah, here we are sitting in our Lexus, telling him he can't have a car. We choose to walk because it's the right thing to do. I mean, it's I don't think you sell that deal that way. No. I think ethics are contextual, but I but I definitely think that uh, the trend is um, that that we extend our ethical concerns that that. That technology has has allowed us to to have like a broader scope of of, of what we consider to be um, behavior that falls within a ethical purview than than we used to have. Because I agree because that too, or because we're allowed to, or we can afford to. Because we can afford to. Because yeah, we, yeah I think that's exactly right. Because we're capable. Because we're capable of doing it. But but it's very interesting that once you have the capability, it seems that you go in that direction. That you say. Um, I, I will no longer entreat. I, I will no longer consider it right ever to treat human beings simply as means to an end. Right? That, that's slavery. Right? Right. We, that that that. At some point, we we have to say that there is a, a level of individual dignity um, that that lies within a human being that has to be respected, no matter what. Uh, or a few years later, you take the stand and you say, well, you can't mistreat animals. You know, I, I, I'm taking, I'm now taking the stand that you can't treat animals just as a means to an end. You know, maybe they're, they're, we're still using them to some extent, but but we're not just. Um, we're, we're not, we're not doing. We're not engaging in dog fighting and and and. There you uh, go. And, right, you know. and 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 the, and the same applies to the planet as a whole. Yeah. Where we say at some point we thought we could just use it as to a means to an end, and we still have to use it. And this is where. Um, this is where that uh, quote from the the Fountainhead comes to mind. There's a scene in the Fountainhead. Howard Rourke is out in the. Uh, it's early in the book. Um, for, for those who haven't read Ayn Rand's The Fountainhead, this isn't really a spoiler or anything. But uh, he's getting ready to take a swim in the rock quarry, and he's just looking around. And everywhere he looks, he sees nature that he can tame and do something useful with. Because right now, it's all just lying there fallow and, and waiting for him to do something with it. And if, if you've read um, Atlas Shrugged, the character Dagny Taggart, I believe is her name, uh, echoes some of those same kind of ideas when, when, when she basically says, there's either you know technology and there's all the great things that human beings build, or there's weeds, right? <laughs> that, 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 that whole attitude that, that nature is just there for us to exploit, for us to do whatever we want to with. And we've really moved away from that idea. We, we don't have that idea anymore. You know, we, we still recognize that we, we, we have to interact with nature, and we have to do things with nature to get where we need to go, but we can't just treat it as a, as a means to an end. Our, our ethics have expanded uh, to incorporate nature, to incorporate animals in ways that, uh, that they didn't before. I think the right, right idea is to, you know, we're... we're to be good stewards, I mean, of of what we have, and to use it as we need to use it, but to to you know to allow nature to be nature and not uh, not just trounce it because we can, you know. Uh, exactly, and you know, we never even got to the topic of artificial intelligence, but I see now that uh, we're already at the point we ought to start talking about what the music is. Yeah, yeah. Um, Sunday Dogs is the name of the band, and uh, the song is Sapien. And it has a, um, this is a pretty, can be uh, uh, seen as a very cynical song about human intelligence. So we don't all, you know, just because we play it doesn't mean we agree with it. It's rocking tune, though. So we got, we got a little bit of cynicism about, uh, about human intelligence as we, as we close out our discussion on the future of ethics. But uh, I think we'll have to revisit this one because it feels it's like... a lot here, isn't there? Yeah, we, we, we miss some of it. I'm sorry, what was the name of the song again? Sapien. Sapien. And we'll have links to that and all the show notes. Absolutely. It'll, and so if you want to hear it, and we're going to, when we play it on the show, it's mono. You get to hear it in stereo if you'll come to the show notes. And uh, we'll have links to everything else we've talked about. And so, of course, that's at the Speculist. Speculist.com. All right. Well, thank you very much, Stephen. And uh, thank you, Michael. Ciao. And uh, thank you to our friends in the chat room and to everyone who is listening. We look forward to being with you all again on the next Fast Forward Radio. Good night.